Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med Mariam Al-Kawaya, som er en aktivist med en helt særlig historie, en helt særlig sag og et helt fantastisk engagement. Hun er født i Syrien i 1987 og er i dag 35 år gammel. Hun voksede op i en familie, hvor begge forældre, hendes mor hed Kadia al-Musawi og hendes far hed Abdul Hadi al-Kawaya, var politiske aktivister. Hendes far var eftersøgt i Badain allerede fra før hun blev født, fordi han var en aktiv menneskerettighedsforkæmper, som på alle mulige fronter havde arbejdet for at skabe større frihed for den enkelte og større kollektiv frihed i Badain. Familien blev relativt tidligt tvunget til at flygte til Danmark, hvor de kom, da Maria Malkavaya, hun var to år gammel. Hun er således vokset op som aktivist i asyl. Hun oplevede at komme til Danmark, der bestemt ikke bød hende velkommen, men hvor det, hun mest fik at vide af sine kammerater, var at tage ud til Kastrup Lufthavn og tage væk igen. Familien fulgte, hvad der skete i Bahrain på afstand og var aktivister i eksil. I slutningen af 90'erne kom der en ny regering i Bahrain, og der var antydning af noget, der kunne blive til fremskridt, og familien vendte tilbage i 2001. På det tidspunkt der var Mariam 14 år gammel og oplevede, at det, der skulle være hendes hjem, faktisk var et nyt sted at være fremmed. For da hun kom til Bahrain, der blev hun betragtet som danskeren og var også der udenfor. Hendes far fortsatte sit aktivistiske arbejde som blev mere og mere omfattende i løbet af 2000'erne. Mediam blev der og tog en uddannelse og rejste efterfølgende til USA, hvor hun studerede på Brown University. Men i 2010 vendte hun tilbage til Bahrain for at fortsætte det politiske arbejde og støtte sin far i hans politiske arbejde. I februar 2011 indledtes det, der blev kendt som det arabiske forår, men som hun har en anden betegnelse for, som I kan høre i samtalen, som var en voldsom opstand mod regimet i Bahrain, og der var i nogle måneder en tro på, at det faktisk ville lykkes at skabe et nyt, bedre, friere og mere retfærdigt samfund. Men det endte bræt, da hendes far blev fængslet, og han har faktisk siddet fængslet i Bahrain siden 2011. Det vil sige, at han har siddet 12 år i fængsel som politisk fange. Han blev, da de flygtede til Danmark, dansk statsborger og er således den eneste danske politiske aktivist, som sidder fængslet i udlandet. I starten af hans tid i fængsel var den danske regering meget aktiv. De senere år har vi betjent os, vi er her den danske regering, af noget, som de kalder for det stille diplomati. Jeg ved ikke, om det stille diplomati i virkeligheden betyder, at der ikke er nogen aktivitet. I hvert fald er der ikke sket noget i meget lang tid. Det er en skandale, at vi har lavet den mand, som er dansk statsborger, sidde så længe uden rigtig at gøre noget i de senere år for at få ud. Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark. And especially, and I think it is good morning to you, Mariam Alcavaya, who is with us from California. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening to you as well. <laughs> Mariam Alcavaya har været meget aktiv i sin fars sag, men også i alle mulige andre menneskerettighedssager i golfen. Hun er, har også selv været fængslet, men kom efter intenst international pres ud af fængslet i Bahrain, og nu er der udstedt en arrestordre på hende i Bahrain, som betyder, at hun ikke kan vende tilbage til nogen golfstater. Så Mariam al lever nu som aktivist i eksil. 
Hun fortæller i den her lange samtale både sin egen historie om, hvordan det er at vokse op i et politisk engageret hjem, om hvordan hun oplevede det arabiske forår, hvorfor hun føler, at den danske regering ikke lever op til sit ansvar i hendes fars sag, og hun fortæller om, hvad vi kan gøre i Vesten for at hjælpe dem, der kæmper for frihed og retfærdighed. God fornøjelse. You know, last night out, there was a big demonstration here in Copenhagen in solidarity with the students of Iran and, of course, all the protests. But this was the historical student protest. And it was such a beautiful day. You know, there are people with torches out in the dark. And there were many people gathered. And I think for everyone, it was an inspiring day. And yet there was a sense of sadness as well, a sense of of of, of melancholy among the activists there who, who had lost their country and were reminded those who were activists in exile, of, of what they'd lost. I was thinking of you. What is it like to be an activist in exile, to fight for a people that you cannot speak for because you're not there and you want to fight for them, but you cannot really speak for them because they are at the spot where it is. And I was thinking of that last night. What What is it like to be an activist in exile? I think it's incredibly difficult. Like I think there's also the question of how long you've been an activist in exile, right? Like I think for me, one of the most difficult things in 2011 was that when my father was arrested so violently in front of my family and I wasn't there, there was this sense of what could I have done if I was there? Like, is there something I could have done to protect my family that I couldn't do because I was in exile or because I was abroad? And then there was also the question of would it have been different to be surrounded by my family going through this, right? Like I was completely on my own 24-7, you know, traveling from country to country doing the advocacy that I was doing. But even in those moments of silence, I didn't have someone to share my trauma with, to share my tragedy with. Uh, and in some in some ways, you know, albeit it's different types of trauma because I didn't I wasn't subjected to what my family was subjected to. I didn't watch my father get arrested the way he did. And at the same time, they had each other. They had each other to move through that um through that trauma, through that tragedy, through the feelings of it, whereas I had to do it by myself. And I think that that's one of the things that happens when you're in exile, when you're abroad, is that you don't have that sense of community, of grieving, of uh, moving through trauma, of trying to heal. Because especially, you know, I think in our culture, uh, you know, when we talk about Bahrain and the Middle East and so on, community healing is such an important part of our societies. And so when you lack that type of community healing, it makes it so difficult. And so that's the I think personal side of it, the emotional side of it. And then there's the more political aspect of it. And I think you're exactly right. And I've said this, you know, for the past 10 years when people ask me, well, what does it feel like to be speaking on behalf of the Bahraini people? And I always say, I'm not. My job is to work as a loudspeaker, to take their voices and bring them to you. But I'm not speaking on their behalf. I don't have the right to speak on their behalf because I'm not there. And so my job as a as an activist, as someone who's a part of that movement, is to recognize also that because I'm abroad, it means that I don't have the experiences of those who are inside Bahrain. And my job really is I have my own opinions and emotions, and of course, around everything that happens. But when it comes to the situation on the ground and what's going on there, my job really is to lift their voices that are being silenced by the government and make sure that they're heard in other places around the world. There's also a phenomenon that you've described in an article in 2016, and whenever it's about survivor's guilt. And when I read it, it's very, very, it's a very beautifully written article. When I read it, I thought everyone should read it to understand 
the refugees that are around us or the exiled people that we live through because people tend to ask well how are you doing with your country and and aren't you happy about the uprising but could you explain this this sensation of survivor's guilt yeah of course and i mean my i think my situation is quite interesting because i didn't grow up in bahrain right i grew up in denmark <laughs> um and so it, my experience is quite uh different i think from a lot of people who spent their entire lives in their home countries and then left as refugees i was a refugee when i was a year and a half old so i don't remember a lot of it um but i think you know when it comes to survivor's guilt the thing that happened is that when i left bahrain i left bahrain after having been there after having been part of the protest having witnessed people get killed i i watched you know people get shot i almost got shot multiple times myself you know when i would leave when i would leave our home in the morning i would say goodbye to my family not knowing if i was going to see them again right like this was the mentality of the protest movement i think of the arab spring is that you never knew if today was going to be the day that you died you know going out and demanding your rights and demanding democracy and so on and so there is that feeling of being again like there's the, there's this feeling of being um a community of belonging within a group because we're all going out and asking for these things we're demanding uh you know democracy and human rights and when i left bahrain there's this um very illogical unreasonable idea that gets stuck in your head which is that um if i had been there then other people would have been saved So even though like when I sit down and I logically think about it I know it's not true I know it's not real I know that even if I had been there I would not have been able to protect my father from those police that day I know that if I had been there it doesn't mean that my father wouldn't have been tortured I probably would have been arrested and tortured with him but there is this trick that your mind plays on you that if if you had been there if you hadn't survived where others didn't then they might have survived and so it's a very difficult heavy experience and i think it's part of ptsd right so when we talk about post traumatic stress disorder which i actually like to call ctsd because it's continuous it's not post like for many mm. of us it never ended right it's still happening and so when you're going through continuous traumatic stress disorder um and you're re reliving these traumas a lot of times there is this illogical thought of but if i had been there things would be different if i had been there i could have protected someone i could have saved someone if i had been arrested then that other person would have not been arrested and of course it's not true it's not real but that's how our psyche works and i think one of the things is that it's not just in your waking hours that you think about this it's not just that it affects you know every everything that you do like i couldn't take even hours off like to go outside or to spend time with my friends because i felt so guilty doing that because now i felt like i had the responsibility mm. to protect others where i failed because i wasn't there physically but it even comes to you in your unconscious so like i used to have nightmares all the time about how you know uh, there was a poet a woman poet who was arrested and tortured in bahrain and i kept dreaming about her about how if i had been there if i had been arrested she wouldn't have been arrested or how if i had been there i could have protected my father from the riot police when they came to take him um and so it manifests itself both in your waking hours and in your sleep you were born in a, in a family of, of political activists your father is a very known activist but your mother was an activist as well and like you said You fled Bahrain very early and came to Denmark. How did it shape you growing up in a family of political activism like this? 
Well, I think, you know, with with my parents, it wasn't so much like the, the framework of how we grew up was quite interesting because it wasn't so much political. It was more about values and principles. Hmm. And so it was about instilling the idea that if you see an injustice and you don't do anything about it, then it then you lose part of your humanity. Hmm. That if you are able to live with yourself, knowing that other people are being subjected to injustice or oppression, then there is something there that's lacking. One of the things that they taught us was that, you know, when we would go to sleep at night, one of the questions we would ask ourselves is, what did I do today to make my society, my community, the world a better place? And it doesn't have to be something grand, right? You don't have to start a revolution or, you know, start a union or whatever it is. It was more of a, did you do an act of kindness to a neighbor? Did you do an act of kindness to a friend or, you know, a colleague or someone like that? And so understanding that, you know, standing up and doing the right thing can matter in the very, very smallest detail of your everyday life, wherein you're trying to make life better for everyone around you, regardless of, you know, whether it's the kid in the playground with you that day or whether it's a teacher that you were nice to or whoever it was. And so understanding it from the very minimum part of it, from that perspective, and then growing out of that into something much bigger of, yes, we even need to take care of our societies. We need to make sure that our societies respect every human being, that the, every human being is treated with equity um, and with uh, dignity and with um, respect and so on. And so that was the main aspect of it. And then my father was very, uh, very good at asking us questions um, that didn't, and then he wouldn't give us the answers. So he would make us really think about it. Taking us to school um, in the morning, uh, he would ask us the question of, well, you know, society or the population of people, they're like this huge giant. And the government is like this very, very tiny man. Why is it that this huge giant is sitting there in chains on his knees and allowing this tiny, tiny man to control him? And, you know, all of us would be like, yeah, why? Why is that? Like, why is it that we are so many more and we can't, you know, and we still listen to like what the government decides we have to do and so on. So like he really made us like question these things or think about these things and never giving us the answer, you know, which forced us to come to our own conclusions as well. And I think that this was a big part of what my parents really instilled in us is thinking for ourselves, is asking these big questions, but then giving us the space to arrive to our own conclusions. When you've been staying in Denmark, there were some political changes in, 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 in Bahrain in the end of the, of, of the 90s. What was the country that you returned to and what were your expectations at the time? Well, I mean, we were all very excited to go to Bahrain. Um, you know, our experience in Denmark wasn't very easy. Um, we were subjected to a lot of racism on almost a daily basis. I mean, one of the first sentences that I learned, you know, very quickly in Danish was uh, which was something that I was told on a near basis, daily basis on the streets as a child. Um, like this was one of the things that we were constantly told on the streets. We used to receive hate mail from our neighbors, you know, all the time telling us to leave and things like that. So our experience in Denmark, although obviously we have a lot of beautiful memories um, and Denmark is also home. Uh, but we also had a very difficult uh, racial experience growing up in Denmark. So I think there was a lot of excitement because there was this idea that Bahrain was the place where we would belong, right? Like we were, we would go and we would fit right in and everyone looks like us and, and it would be like suddenly we're part of the majority, not the minority anymore and so on. And I think for me personally, and I don't think my sisters had the same experiences as I did uh, for my conversations with them. But for me personally, when I went there, it was a huge culture shock. Because I realized that there were parts of me that were more Danish than I had thought. Mm. Um, and so I had some difficulty fitting in in society in Bahrain. 
Um, and I remember like one of the things that struck me as incredibly ironic is that, you know, all that time in Denmark, I was thinking, well, you know, one day I'll go back to Bahrain and I'll belong and things will be different. And then I went to Bahrain and my nickname in high school was the Dane. So all the other kids <laughs> in high school would call me the Dane. And it was incredibly ironic because suddenly I was Danish and people accepted me as Danish. Um, so it was a very interesting experience from that perspective. But I think a big part of it was also I expected to come back to a country that was full of activists, right? I mean, like watching my parents, watching all of the Bahrainis who were in Denmark, because there were 21 Bahraini families in Denmark at the time when we were there. And they were all uh, refugees. They were all people who were active and so on. So I thought that I was going back to a country full of activists, like it was all civil society and everyone was fighting for the same things. And I realized that that wasn't the case. I realized that even when my father started the Bahrain Center for Human Rights. And even when, you know, he would get beaten by riot police on the streets and I've watched him get beaten up even before 2011 and arrested and so on. I was so disappointed and disheartened that there weren't more people supporting him and his activism because I didn't really understand what it meant to go through an uprising. The Bahrainis had been through an uprising in the 1990s where it was, it got so bad at one point that people didn't know that if they left their homes, that if they would be coming back or not, because people were disappearing, people were getting tortured to death and so on. And I didn't understand why it was that the Bahraini population was really trying hard to believe in the promise of the king that things were actually changing. And so my father was making them realize that it wasn't and they were resisting that. And at the time, I was so disappointed in the population of Bahrain because I didn't understand that mentality until 2011 happened. Right. When 2011 happened and I saw what it meant to be almost killed. I saw what it meant to have your family members arrested and disappeared, to watch your family members get tortured, to be assaulted yourself and all these things. That's when I started understanding it. I understood why it was that people really wanted to hold on to that idea that the king was actually going to deliver on his promise of a constitutional monarchy, which of course he didn't. So what was it like when the Arab Spring uh, hit, hit Bahrain? I remember watching it from here and, and, and being, you know, we also rem very romantic in the West. When we see people in the street, we're always sure they're winning. And actually, they're not. So I remember this as a very inspirational moment. If, if you take your, your mind back, what, what were the promise of the Arab Spring for you at the time in February of 2011? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because I feel like that in that moment, we all lived in this very intense, continuous adrenaline rush, right? Like we were all so high on adrenaline because... It was both so exciting and also so scary. Um, you know, I remember I was in London when the Arab Spring started in Tunisia and then Egypt. And then I decided to go back to Bahrain. I was in London because I was about to be arrested in 2010 and I had to flee the country. And so when the Arab Spring arrived in Tunisia and then Egypt and we started organizing for protests in Bahrain, I was like, of course, I'm not going to miss out on this. So even though there was a risk that I would be arrested, I decided to book a ticket and go back to Bahrain. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't arrested because the Bahraini government was already worried about the protests coming to Bahrain, so they didn't want to create more of a, a reason for people to take to the streets. So I wasn't arrested at that point. And I remember there was this massive excitement. Like I remember sitting in the living room with my family watching Mubarak step down. And just that moment of sheer joy and, and disbelief that they actually succeeded that they actually were able to make Ben Ali flee the country. They were actually successful in making Mubarak step down. It was just this intense 
joy and disbelief that this could actually happen. And I remember, you know, we had decided that the 14th of February was going to be our day. That was a day we were going to take to the streets and we were going to demand democracy and human rights and, you know, uh, return to the promises that the king had made and so on. And it was this, you know, this it's it's not. And I, I you know, it's I think it's interesting because a lot of times people talk about the Arab Spring in 2011 as if the fear had been broken and no longer existed. And I don't think that that's true at all. I think that what happened is that we found something that was more important than our fear. The fear was there. And the reason the fear was there was because the consequences were very real. We knew that we might be killed. We knew that we might be arrested and tortured. We knew that, you know, all of the most horrific things that you can imagine happening to an individual could happen to us. So the fear was still there because the consequences were still there and very real. But we decided that what we were fighting for was more important than our fear. And that's why people took to the streets, right? And so there was this like, for the first time, like the way that I like to describe it, it's like, it's as if if you've ever been swimming and you've been underwater, it's that feeling like existing in Bahrain was that feeling. It was that feeling of being deprived of oxygen underwater. And 2011 and taking to the streets was as if you become you came up above water for the first time and you breathed oxygen for the first time. And you realize what you've been missing, right? You realize what you've been missing when you can take a poster and write whatever you want and hold it up because you're no longer censoring yourself, because you're no longer afraid of speaking out. And this is something that is so entrenched in our in our countries because of the oppression, because of the dictatorships. And it's just not just in Bahrain. You'll hear the same thing from the Syrians, from the Egyptians, from the Tunisians, from the Moroccans, you know, about how we always say the walls have ears. And you're so careful and you censor yourself all the time with what you say because you know you can get disappeared if you if you say the wrong thing and so the idea that you could write whatever you want on a poster and hold it up in public was just you know unimaginable and so I think you know it like I said it was this mix of like sheer joy but also this disbelief but also mixed in with fear intense fear of what was to come and what could happen because we also knew that Bahrain was different when we took to the streets in Bahrain it wasn't like in Egypt or in Tunisia when we took to the streets of Bahrain we were going up against six governments not one we were going up against the entire Gulf Cooperation Council countries. So Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Kuwait, and Oman, because all of these countries work together. And we knew that we were, if we were successful in bringing down the Bahraini government and, and bringing on a democracy, that it would have a domino effect, that we would see the same thing happen in other countries. And we also knew that that meant that the other countries were going to try to make sure that that didn't happen. So it was an incredibly intense feeling and intense moment in time, of course, for, for our movement and for Bahrain and for the region, I think. Looking back now, I know this is a very difficult question. Uh, they all are. So, so thanks, sir. Uh, do you think that looking back that there was never a chance that it was going to succeed or that there was something, other strategies that, that could have been applied, other alliances that, that could have been made that that either it was an impossible battle from the beginning or that there was something that could have been done otherwise both inside and outside the country maybe we could have been more helpful or or or, or whatever you know i wrote um i actually wrote a paper on this it was uh the the lessons that i've learned 10 years after the arab spring um and i remember you know really reflecting on this like what could we have done differently because I think part of what really bothers me is the discourse around the Arab Spring and where we are now. Because a lot of times people talk about, well, the Arab Spring failed. Or look at what the Arab Spring caused. Look at how much worse the situation is right now in the Middle East and North Africa. And it's because of the Arab Spring. And I think that that's incredibly dangerous discourse because the message that it sends 
is that peacefully protesting for your rights is the reason why things get worse. And I think that um, the message that we should be sending is that the reason why the situation is what it is right now in the Middle East and North Africa is because of the oppression, is because of the lack of an international system that protects unarmed peaceful protesters against their dictatorships. That's the reason we are where we are today. It's not because people took to the streets demanding something better. And so I think the discourse is incredibly important. And unfortunately, a lot of the time, discourse is controlled by the dictators, right? It's this, it's, it is controlled by mainstream media Media. It is controlled by others. It's not controlled by the protesters, especially protesters who aren't successful in bringing down governments. And so I think that that's one part of it is that we really, I think, one of the things that we could have focused on a lot more was also how do we influence discourse, uh, which I think we tried, you know, it wasn't for <laughs> lack of trying. Like I remember even when I was doing interviews almost, uh, you know, multiple times, times a day sometimes, I would always tell journalists, like, your way of talking about Bahrain and, and casting it in a sectarian lens and making it seem like it's a religious thing is incredibly bad for our movement. And it's also not true. You know, the, the government made it about Sunnis and Shias, but actually the thing is political. When you look, you know, and especially like when you look at it from that perspective, it's, it's incredibly problematic how these things are talked about in the Middle East because it's seen from a Western point of view, it's simplified and it collapses the experience and the political reality of these countries and of these societies. And so the discourse in that sense becomes incredibly important. And I think also the, the situation and the response internationally to our situations was incredibly problematic. Because when we look at, for example, the double standards and how the EU, the United States, the UK responded to the protests in certain countries versus others. In Libya, they actually went in and bombed the Gaddafi regime to support the Libyan protesters who had picked up arms. In Bahrain, they supported the government. In Bahrain, you know, like, and also like, even now when you look at situations that are more recent, before the Ukraine war, when the Russians had sent in military forces into Crimea, there was worldwide international condemnation against the Russians. But when the Saudis and the Emiratis sent in military, you know, jeeps to, to attack the Bahraini population and support the Bahraini government, military jeeps, which by the way, were made in the United Kingdom, um, there was no international condemnation. You know, when Hillary Clinton was asked about this as Secretary of State, her reaction was, well, Bahrain has the sovereign right to invite foreign troops into the country. And so when you look at the double standards of how human rights and democratic values and principles are applied, you'll see that, especially in the West, where we talk about how human rights and freedom and democracy is so important to us as Danes, as Europeans, as people in the West, where we talk about how important these things are, but then we don't apply it um, when it comes to countries that are allied to us. And I always say, you know, if you want to know whether a country actually respects and holds the principles of values of democracy and human rights, don't ask how well they apply it to their enemies, because that's easy. Ask mm -hmm. how well they apply it to their allies, how well they apply it to their friends. And unfortunately, when it comes to the EU, when it comes to the United States, when it comes to the UK, and when it comes to their allies in the Gulf, human rights and democracy is not a priority, nor is it applied as a principle and a value. I think also that the discourse on the Arab Spring is extremely important because of the way we see it here. That you know, people thought that it would succeed, and we were hoping, out of the best of our our hearts, also knowing that we screwed up so many things in the Middle East. I mean, most of us feel a lot of guilt about about that. But I think now there is a discourse here that it that it will never happen. That it's very dangerous to believe in in uprisings. It's very dangerous. It, it will only get get worse. And I think you see that to a certain extent about Iran now, that people are saying, well, 
the processing, but we saw how, how the Arab Spring ended. And when you say, actually, we don't know how the Arab Spring ended. We don't know how it shaped an, another generation. So, so what would you like for us here in, in the West to be the lesson? Well, Apart from, of course, holding holding our allies to the same standards as our enemies. Of course. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that would be a number one thing. I think the other thing is um, also when we look at Middle Eastern countries, like I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me when we talk about 2011 in the Middle East, a lot of times in the media when they talked about the Arab Spring, and I just I actually don't like the term Arab Spring either because it was a Western imposed name to our movement. I think, you know, in the, in the region, we'd like to call it revolutions of dignity or uprisings of dignity because Arab Spring is very, first of all, you know, um, spring is very romanticized. Like the, the kind of, when you look at what actually happened to people on the ground, the killings, the torture, the brutality, you wouldn't call it a spring, right? And I think also the, the using the term Arab, um, not everyone in the region is Arab. There are Kurds, there are, you know, Amazigh, there are other people and like, to call everyone Arab is also uh, problematic because it, it excludes so many peoples, so many people in the region who are part of these movements. And so I think, you know, even in the terminology, there's a problem. But I think, you know, when it comes to looking at the region, one of the things that lacks is listening. I think, you know, a lot of times they talk about the Arab Spring as if like, well, it was such a shock. It was such a surprise. Nobody saw it coming. Like, how did this happen? And the fact of the matter is, is that if governments in the West had had actually listened to civil society, was actually listening to civil society in those countries and asking them what the situation is, what was happening, what was the outcome of the situation and so on they would have known that this was coming because civil society in these countries knew this was coming because they were working towards it, right? And so it wouldn't have been such a surprise if we had actually listened to civil society spaces. And I think this applies to everything. You know, when we talk about climate justice, for example, and the, the situation right now with the climate change, if people had listened to climate change activists, back when, when they were talking and screaming and yelling about climate change and the destruction that is happening to the world and so on, if we had actually listened to them, hopefully we wouldn't be where we are, right? Um, because we actually listened and we knew that this was coming. And so I think that's part of the problem that we have today is that we really need to start listening to activists in civil society because they're the ones who know that what they're talking about and what's happening. The other thing I think is that we really need a shift internationally in how we respond to peaceful movements for change. Because the way that the international um, you know, mechanisms are set up today, when we talk about international law, when we talk about all these different things, we do have institutions that are supposed to respond to human rights issues and to human rights violations and crimes, but these institutions are political institutions which means they only apply where political entities want them to apply. So they don't apply usually in the Gulf, right? Um, because a lot of people don't want to go, you know, um, in adversity to the Gulf or to call out the Gulf. We saw what happened when Sweden, you know, talked about women's rights in Saudi Arabia and nobody stood by them. Not even their European allies stood by them to say, yes, good job. You should have, you should talk about women's rights in Saudi Arabia. And so what we need is a, is a system, a legal system, preferably, but a system nonetheless that protects human beings who are trying to create change peacefully. Because what we have right now, we have a system that becomes activated when there is an armed resistance, right? When we have armed resistance, suddenly the laws of conflict is used, right? The international laws around conflict. And so what that does is that it sends a message to people that actually you're more protected under international law if you pick up guns than if you don't. 
if you pick up guns, there are laws that can be applied to you and that will protect mm. you more, whether it's for prisoners, prisoners of war or whatever it is. But if you don't pick up guns, there's actually no protection. Whether you get tortured or imprisoned or, or killed or whatever it is, that's a sovereign issue. And suddenly the international community is like, hands up, we're only going to do so much to protect people. And I think that that is so incredibly problematic because I think that's that's the result of the Arab Spring today, is that the message that's been sent to the new generations is that peaceful struggle doesn't work is that peaceful resistance and peaceful uprising, which was what our generation learned. And that's why we did what we did in 2011. We, we wanted to use peaceful method and peaceful resistance to bring about change. The new generation, they're learning the exact opposite. They're learning that peaceful resistance doesn't work, that peaceful uh, you know, um, activism doesn't work, and that the only way you can bring about change is through violence. It's through picking up guns. It's through fighting in that way. And that scares me a lot because I think that the current situation, whether in the Gulf or throughout the Middle East and North Africa, and many other countries around the world today as well, I don't think our situation is sustainable. I think there is going to be another wave of protest, another wave of attempting change. But I think that the generation that is going to lead that wave is not going to be like us. They're not going to come out with flowers, you know, and, and nice chants and trying to give roses to police. They're going to come out and want to fight back because violence is all they've known from the governments. And the message that they've received is that peaceful protest doesn't work. When it comes to this issue, we have this uh, uprising in Iran at the moment, which in my view, I know there has been few incidents in, in, in few provinces of Iran, but all in all, these are incredibly peaceful protests, thinking of what they're, they're up against. They're different from other protests in Iran because they're decentralized. There's no head of the snake. There's no Musavi this time that you can take out. And I think they're extremely inspiring for young women that are protected by young men who want to be men in a different way, and their fathers are Uh, are learning it. So the thing you said in the beginning with the fear and the adrenaline at the same time, I feel that very much with this Iranian situation because they demand our support and they needed everything we can get. On the other hand, it's very hard for me, but I have limited view, it's very hard to see an end game that's not incredibly violent here. Uh, how do you see this situation? I mean, obviously I stand in solidarity with the movement in Iran. Um, and I really hope that that they are able to bring about change. But I do think that, again, a lot of that is related to how the international community reacts to it, right? Like, I think that there are mechanisms that can be used to hold the Iranian government accountable. And that's not in the sense of, you know, Western hegemony and the West trying to come in and take over as they have in other situations. Like, I'm not someone who supports, you know, full sanctions on a country, because I think that at the end of the day, we've seen this in Iran, we've seen this in other places where full sanctions actually affect the poorest of the poor in the country and not the people in charge. I believe in targeted sanctions where you're targeting individuals within the government who are responsible for the for the crimes that are happening and so on. And we've seen this happening with Russia. Why is it that the international community was so fast to react with Russia? And that was a good thing. I mean, that's something that we all supported. You know, the international community needed to react to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But why is it that they can do the right thing when it comes to Ukraine, when it comes to Russia? But when it comes to the Middle East, I mean, the Russians did the exact same thing, if not worse, in Syria. And yet we did not see an international reaction that was appropriate or that held the Russians accountable when it came to Syria. And are we going to see that in Iran? Are we going to see the international community actually coming together to hold the Iranian government accountable? Um, 
And I think part of this also is about the double standards, right? Part of the reason why so many people look at the West with an eye of suspicion when they react to situations like Ukraine or Iran and so on is because of the double standards. It's why is it that when it comes to certain countries, you're willing to act and other countries, you're not willing to act. And so the double standards actually come back and, and bite us because um, as Europeans, you know, when we're <laughs> trying to do the right thing, because people are like, well, why are you suddenly now interested in doing the right thing? Why weren't you interested in doing the right thing? when it came to other countries, right? And so I think that we really need, uh, you know, as they say, a coming to Jesus moment of like really starting to think about how what are the things that we need to change internationally within the systems and so on to make sure that in the future when people rise up, when they when populations demand change and so on, that they are protected, that internationally we're coming to each other's aid. And I think part of that is the uh, solidarity amongst movements because our governments do such a great job learning from each other of how to oppress us and how to crack down. You know, when we're talking about Bahrain and others, and our movements need to do a better job of standing in solidarity with each other. So when the Bahrainis come out and stand out with the Iranians and we stand with the people in Mexico and the people in Chile and, you know, the women fighting in Poland for their rights and in other places and in Hungary and so on and so forth. When we start to actually, as movements, connect with each other and learn with each other, I think that's when we become so much more powerful. And so I think with Iran today, like. One, we need better international response and holding the Iranian government accountable and not falling for, you know, window dressing changes. Like when the Iranian government comes out and says that they're, you know, getting rid of the moral police and then people are like, are they actually, was that, you know, a slip? Was it actually happening and so on? So not falling for things like that, which is window dressing changes that doesn't actually change the root of the problem, right? Because yes, the... the hijab, the headscarf, has become a symbol of oppression in Iran because it's forced on women. And the problem goes way beyond that, right? It's not just about the hijab. It's about an entrenched system of lack of human rights and freedoms. That's what it becomes about. And so it really, there really needs to be that understanding that it goes beyond that. And window dressing changes aren't going to make that difference. We need real incremental like change from the inside that actually shifts this is the political situation in the country. So I think, you know, from an international perspective, that needs to shift. And then also, of course, solidarity amongst movements. And so people actually standing together, activists supporting each other and so on. I spoke to uh, to Masia Pahari, you know, the filmmaker who was in prison and forced to make confessions and then and then managed to, to flee Iran. And he was all the time, I spoke to him 20 years ago and I spoke to him again recently. And he was always very skeptical of revolution as a as a message. He said, well, he's seen so much political violence. And he was part of, of the wing that believed we take these small liberal steps. Now we can play music. Now women are allowed to the to the football stadium. For each step, it will improve our lives a little bit more, and they will make it easier for us to organize, to get real, real structural change. And in many countries, there's this, you, you tried making small steps, like happened in Iran also after you came back. This is one way of looking at it, that, that these small steps will be helpful and we want to avoid political violence because violence will always enable the people with the biggest guns. And then there's the other way of seeing saying, well, we've done this for, for decades. You know, we gain five steps and then they take one kilometer away from us. We, we need a revolution. How, how do you see these methods? I think that different situations need different tools, right? Like, I think that one of the things that I really wanted to do and I started doing recently was to really reflect on our methodology and the way that we really responded or the way that we took to the streets and the way that we tried to bring about change. And one of the things that I realized is that 
we were already doing or implementing the idea of um, intersectionality before intersectionality like really became a big thing in civil society, right? Because we were working on all different issues, whether it's women's rights or migrant rights or you know the rights of children or political rights and so on and so forth. But I think one thing that was missing was the focus on advocacy outside of political circles, because especially when it comes to the Gulf, it's not just about politics, it's about economics. Right. And I think that's the part that was missing for us for the Gulf to change. We can't just target political entities, because even if we're able to get, you know, uh, political statements or condemnations or whatever it is, which is rare and few. But even when we are able to get them for the Gulf countries, they know that if they can weather those statements, it doesn't actually change anything because most of these countries are going to do business as usual with them anyway. And we've seen this time and time again with Saudi Arabia and other places, right? And so the idea is how can we shift our methodologies as civil society, as an, as an activist, and start to use tools that we haven't used to before? So how do we take a step back and reflect on what things have worked well for us and what things haven't worked for us? And what are things that we haven't yet used that we're supposed to be using? And I think that that economic aspect of it is incredibly important moving forward because that's actually where, you know, the where the influence actually starts and stops. It's the economics because it all comes down to the money. It all comes down to the security and economic deals between countries. So mostly even more so than politics. The politics is what makes the economy work. Right. Mm. And so I think that really having that understanding and starting to go into that field of, of, of how do we use those tools economically is really going to benefit us um, as you know activists, as movements. I think that the other part of this is that there's only so much that a people can take, because when you're sitting by a fire, it's very different than if you're sitting by the fire or if you're sitting with your hand inside the fire. Right. Outside the fire, you might get overheated at some points and it's uncomfortable, but you're not burning. And when you're talking about these populations where I think there needs to be a real understanding of what the day-to-day -day life is like, right? When, when, you're, when you're not able to go outside your home because you're afraid, when you're not able to wear what you want to wear because you're afraid, when you're not able to say the things you want to say because you're afraid, living in that kind of space, and I've tried it in Bahrain, right, before the uprising started, it's, it's incredibly suffocating. And there's only so much that people can take before before they break, right? And it also influences that the way society functions. When we're talking about, you know, the increase of, you know, domestic violence, when we talk about the increase in, in other issues and problems that start occurring within society, it's because a lot of times the political aspect of the overarching situation in a society affects and influences the day-to-day -day lives of people. And so we can talk about reforms and in some cases that might be the better approach but i think that revolution is what happens when people can't take it anymore it's when people feel like you know i have nothing left to lose because i've already lost everything so why why shouldn't i take to the streets and get killed that's what happened with al-bouazizi in tunisia is that he reached a point where he couldn't take it anymore so he set himself on fire because as a response to his dignity being taken away by the police over and over and over again. And so that's when you start seeing revolution. And I think the thing that we need to really remember is that, yes, we've been fighting for a very long time. And Bahrain is a good example of that. You know, we've been having uprisings in Bahrain since the 1920s, making the exact same demands. I mean, you can watch BBC videos from the 1950s where people in Bahrain were asking for the exact same things that we're asking for right now, right? And so we've been doing it for a very long time. But how long did it take for the French Revolution to actually turn into a democracy, right? Like nobody really talks about that. Like the, the amount of space and time and violence that it took 
for things to actually shift in countries like France and other places that ended up becoming democracies is that sometimes, yes, things will get worse and sometimes things will be violent and sometimes it'll take a very long time. But the end result is where we need to get. And, and complacency and sticking in the, in the static of where we are right now, that's not a solution either because like I said, there's only so much that people can take. It's actually also the history of Denmark. You know, we had one year with the freedom of assembly and, and free speech in the 18th century. We had one year of that. That was just an experiment. And then it was taken out again and it was gone for 65 years. And mm -hmm. then all of a sudden we, we, we had the constitution that was not even democratic, but it was one year of freedom. And people thought, oh, that was a crazy experiment. Let's never do that again. And, and then it re-blossomed. I want to ask you here in the end, Mariam, about your father. He's now been in prison for more than 10 years in, in Bahrain. He's been exposed to torture. He's been abused. He's been on hunger strike. He's done so much. He's fought so hard. You fought with him. He's a Danish citizen. In the beginning, when he, he was in prison, there were Danish politicians, prime ministers standing up for him. Now they're saying they're doing the silent diplomacy, which to me seems like it's an synonym for, do, for not doing anything. How is he doing and what do you want the Danish government to do? I mean, honestly, my father is not doing very well. Um, his health is not doing well. He was very severely tortured in 2011, um, both physically, psychologically and sexually. Um, I mean, there, there's reports that were documented by the Bahraini government that detail how he was tortured. You can see it online. Um, and that was one of the, I think, the toughest moments of my life was reading that report of reading what happened to my father in prison. And, you know, I always thought that because we're Danish citizens, that protects us, right? Um, it protects us because there's a government that's going to fight for us. Um, because, you know, I think in some ways we're the ideal Danish citizens, right? Like we were in Denmark when we had to be. And then when we were able to go back and fight for rights in our country, we did that. And, you know, in some ways that's that's usually the story that's brought forward of like the good refugees, which I mean is very problematic and a whole other conversation on its own. But we thought that, you know, being Danish citizens means that there was some form of protection because we're Danish and because our country respects, like as Denmark respects human rights and democracy and so on. And I think that unfortunately that hasn't quite been the case. Um, you know, even for myself, when I was released from prison, I was released from prison because there was such heavy international pressure for my release internationally. And a lot of it came from other places than Denmark. It came from the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. Um, and it came from other places. And there were several governments that called for my release. But I think I am quite disappointed um, with the silent diplomacy approach. Not because I don't think that people aren't trying. I think there are people trying. There are politicians who really care and who do want to see my father released from prison. But I think we've now reached a point where my father has been in prison for almost 12 years. And it's been 10 years of silent diplomacy. I don't think we need more time to prove that silent diplomacy is not working. You know, I, I, I do believe them when they tell me that they're trying their best in silent diplomacy to get my father released, that, that's what, that they believe that that's the best approach. But the fact of the matter is, is that if it was working, it would have worked. And now what we're seeing is instead there have been new cases brought against my father in prison um, after uh, almost 12 years in prison. And they're harassing him even more. And he's more in need of medical treatment because of the torture and because of the hunger strikes. And so what more evidence do we need than 10 years 
for the Danish government to say, okay, now we realize, now we concede that silent diplomacy is not working and we will try a different approach. And I think that that's what I'm waiting for. I'm waiting to hear from the Danish government that, yes, we realize now that 10 years is enough evidence that silent diplomacy doesn't work. And I'm not saying that we need to go full on public. I'm saying that we need a mix of both silent and public diplomacy to get my father out of prison. And we've seen so many people released from prison in other countries. You know, the United States has been able to get uh, American Egyptian citizens out of prison in Egypt. We've seen this happen in other places. But unfortunately, we haven't seen the same amount of pressure being put on Bahrain to do that with my father in, in Bahrain, unfortunately. And I think for us, that is actually a national disgrace. I mean, he's the only political prisoner for, for the reason that, that he's been convicted for in Bahrain. He's the only in the world that we should that we should protect. And we could act in concert with the European Union. We will keep pressuring. I can promise you that. Thank you so much for, for talking Thank to us. Said. Thank you for your work and your inspiration. Thank you, Mariam. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Det var min samtale med Mariam Al-Kawaya, som talte med os på en forbindelse fra Kalifornien. Indimellem var forbindelsen lidt hakkende. Jeg håber, I bærer over med den dårlige forbindelse. Den her samtale var som alle andre samtaler klippet af vores vidunderlige hjælper og kammerat, Anne Pilegaard Petersen. Tak til Anne endnu en gang. Jeg håber, I lytter med igen i næste uge. Tak for nu.